Welcome to Book of Mormon Central Come Follow Me podcast with your hosts, Lynn Wilson and John Cho. Hello, hello. Shalom, shalom. <laughs> so last time we left off with Joseph and his family coming to Egypt. And we get to start Exodus. And we start Exodus. But it's a huge jump from one to the other. <laughs> How do we go from Joseph saving the world to his whole family and tribe and nation. I feel like the text continues right where we left off. You know, it lists all the 12 sons of Jacob. And then we have this problem <laughs> where we're just told that there's been a change. And we don't really get a lot of details as to what happened, although it's a 300 plus year period. And you know, we right. were told later in Exodus 20 how many years it is. Exodus 12 tells us that between Joseph's entry into Egypt and their exit from Egypt is 430 years. Okay. So, you know, we've got about 350 years from Joseph's death at 110, where he's embalmed. And during this time, I really see it as Israel. We begin the book of Exodus with Israel enslaved, but we don't really understand more than what Genesis tells us that they're building these treasure cities. I like to look at the whole book of Exodus as they start out as slaves for Pharaoh. Right. Building these treasure cities, at least in King James, that's what they're called. And then they are freed by God. And then Israel chooses not to be enslaved, but they choose to serve God and build his tabernacle, which is a type of their eternal treasure cities. Right. So this enslavement, the difference between slavery and servitude to between the earthly kings and our heavenly king, it's just it's just a powerful Right. message. But um, how did they get into slavery? The historical part is so interesting here because we just don't have a lot in the in the scripture. The only thing we say is there there comes, which, which verse is that? There comes a king that knew not Joseph. Right. That's it. And there was a lot more than that in 350 years. You <laughs> know, right. in, in fact, as we look at the beautiful records of this dynasty, we realize that if we're going to use the dates, it can fall anywhere in this 200, 300, 400 year period. We know that they're there for at least 400 years, but it's all in the middle kingdom of the Egyptian dynasties. And there's these intermediate periods where foreign kings come in mm. and it very well could fit there. Historically, it seems likely that maybe Joseph was more welcomed into the courtroom by one of these foreign kings. The high coast dynasty were called the shepherd kings or the kings of the sand dwellers and and possibly even we're speaking in Semitic based languages, although Joseph always speaks Egyptian, you know, they would have adopted Egyptian. And the High Coast Dynasty for about 108 years is in major control. But there's portions of them where they're up in the upper Nile and the lower Nile, you know, and we know that Joseph and the Israelites are living down. Well, it's up north. It's the northern tip of Africa right where the Delta River Valley, right where the Nile spreads out so much there. Goshen is on that eastern seaboard there, or the eastern board of the rivers there as they split up into the Delta. So that's an option. The High Coast Dynasty, it seems to fit in many regards. But if we're just going by numbers and the dates themselves, it could be another group, another dynasty, anywhere from the 15th to the 12th dynasties in Egypt, about 1900 BCE to 17. 100 BCE, uh, give or take 50 years or so on either side. There's just a lot of flexibility. But by the time we get to Exodus, it appears that we're in the 18th or 19th dynasty. You know, we've, we've completely changed. The haikus are out. Those kings are gone. And we now have Egyptians running Egypt. 
And as we look at the way Moses goes from one to the other, he just skips over this. It's not until we look at extra biblical texts that we get this information. And I'm really grateful for things like the book of Jasher, because Jasher explains, and I'm quoting from Jasher chapter 65, verse 10, that the princes of Egypt come out and say, all ye men of Egypt and Goshen, all ye children of Israel, and all ye inhabitants of the cities, who is willing to build with us? Each shall have his wages given to him daily. You know, they, they start out with this great plan that is going to be some sort of a joint venture. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is this is going to be initially a great building project and everyone's going to be. And we do have uh, dynasties like the Nubian dynasty did say everyone is going to work together. You know, so this is part of their history at, at some points. But according to Jasher, it was never intended to remain that way. And Jasher pulls out, I don't know if Jasher's written by people of the Levitic of Levitical descendants, but Jasher pulls out the Levites here and he says, the children of Levi were not employed in this work. They were not willing to do it because they realized the deception of these Egyptians. Hmm. Um, they knew that they were speaking these things wrong and they refused to go. But the thing that's amazing to me, whoever the kings are, whichever dynasty this is, the Lord is blessing them even in their time of servitude because it's repeated, I guess here it is, Exodus chapter 1, verse 7, they multiplied greatly yeah. and then go over to, to verse 20. Again, it's mentioned, you know, they dealt with them and the people are multiplying and waxing very mighty and great. And in the ancient world, you know, we have a pretty flat birth rate for so many centuries. But it sounds like even during these times of trial, the Lord is blessing his servants with posterity. And he's blessing them with the thing that matters the most, with great families. And it's just interesting to me to see these children because that's what finally gets them really scared. And that's why yeah. they start throwing the babies into the water. You know, this right. is, uh, I guess another thing I should have said historically before we get on to some of the more important things spiritually is that the King James translation of the treasure cities were actually storage cities or supply centers mm. that they're building. So it's similar to what Joseph was doing, which That's I right. thought was interesting. He's having right. them carry on Joseph's work. However, they're in servitude. So that's the problem. I, I look at Exodus, not only it was this theme of going from servitude, slavery to chosen servitude, but a theme of work. This is one way that we become able to live the law of consecration is we all give our widow's might. We all work the best we can. We, we do it, it all. So let's, you Move mentioned the midwives, the right? You know, oh, so, so yeah, that's Exodus chapter one. This is a okay. good link here. Yeah. So it ends with yeah. the midwives. That's why they're mighty. It says right here. God dealt well with midwives. This is well, it's because, it's because Pharaoh wants to throw all the babies in the water, right? right. Where, where's that one? That's 22, um, just two verses later. Okay. Right? Why so, did you read it? And Pharaoh charged all his people saying, every son that is born, you shall cast into the river and every daughter you shall save alive. Yeah. So, and the reason why he does that, according to Josephus, now I, I know he's writing thousands of years later, but it's still the history of the Jews. He says that one of the Egyptian scribes came and told the Pharaoh that this great child was going to be born. And that he would bring, this is a quotation from Josephus, he would bring the Egyptians' dominion low, and he would raise the Israelites, and he would excel all men in virtue and obtain glory, that he would be remembered through all the ages. And, of course, the king Nailed feared it. that. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the sages got it. But I, I think it's interesting because that quotation not only testifies of Moses, but who else does it prophesy of? 
Exactly. You know, it's our savior. Yeah. It's beautiful type of Christ. Yeah. Yeah, Moses is a type of Christ. And this, you know, he is also going to excel all men in virtue and he is going to obtain glory and he will be remembered for all ages. You know, it's a beautiful. So I don't know who these scribes or the sacred Egyptian scribes were that telling the king, but you're right. They did. They nailed it. They got it. They got prayer at the very least. Okay. So the midwives, let's look at verses 15 to 22. So obviously Moses escaped that decree. Yeah. And yeah. How did that happen? Right. So, yeah. But, but we got to get the midwives names in before we get we to Let's talk about Moses that. is, so is in verse two. two? Yeah. No, Moses is two, but the midwives, their names are mentioned. And, you know, we have a lot of biblical names used by people. There's a lot of Sarah's and Elizabeth's and Mary's and Miriam's, but have you ever heard a Shiprara or a Pua? I really think we ought to put a plug out there for your baby girls here. <laughs> Shiprara. And Pua are blessed. Verse it says in King Exodus one fifteen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it says that they're blessed with houses. That's King James. That, that really means they're blessed with posterity, a household. They're blessed with their their whole households are blessed. They're blessed with children. And I also think it's ironic that they're used here as our good examples. Not only because they're so busy reproducing all these babies, but they also stand up for what's right, and they actually are not completely honest. Oh, I'm sorry. We never have a chance to throw them in the water because these Egypt- right. these Hebrews just jump off the birthing stools so fast, you know. But I just see them as one of our heroes. But there are so many heroes in this book. Um, have yeah. we talked about the heroes of all of this yet in Exodus? I mean, not yet. Moses, who else? In Exodus? Yeah, look there's at the whole a, book at, lot, at large. The midwives, Moses. Well, I guess most of all, God, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's... yeah. The children of Israel become heroes here. You know, they, 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 they take themselves out of this terrible situation. And through 40 years of purification, they become a purified people and they enter into the promised land. I, yeah. The book of Exodus really has a lot of great heroes as well as themes. But now the midwives are probably involved in the birth of Moses. I don't know. But I just wanted to mention one thing. One of the attacks against um, some of these stories for the validity of the Bible when we go into the Bible as history for people outside of our faith tradition who denounce some of these stories, they say there's no way the Israelites could have grown this fast in this situation. So just by doing a little math, I asked my son Peter to help me on this math. And he said, if we have a generation every 35 years, and if the average Israelite woman can bear five children, now remember you're getting married as soon as you can reproduce. You're getting married very young. If the average Israelite woman can have five children. So some can have one, some can have 10, you know, but the average is going to have five. You're able to build a society of almost 2 million people in that 12, 13 generations that would have been in that 400 years, 430 years. So I'm thinking, no, this could have done that. It it would not have been done on the growth rate that the rest of the world was dealing with. But that's why in the book of Moses, we get this emphasis as they are having babies galore. Right. It's sort of getting off the airport in San Francisco, getting off the airport in Salt Lake City. One is filled with babies. The other is not. <laughs> <laughs> true. Yeah, well, it, it does. It does make sense that this would go that whoever you know is writing this goes out of the way to say that in verse 20. Right. You know, I think so. People multiplied so. and waxed very mighty. Yeah. That, that, that's, and it's, that's it's an extraordinary situ- thing. Yeah. Right. That, so there's our historical background before Moses's birth. Right. You know, and these midwives are our, our heroes there. But now comes this great prophet who's been prophesied of even, I believe, to Enoch, or is it just to Joseph? Anyway, he's been prophesied for hundreds of years. And I'm fascinated that 
in the book of Exodus, they use his name trying to make it, you know, that he's taken out of the water. They're trying to Hebrewize the name. But this is an Egyptian name. And remember, the vowels aren't in ancient languages. So look at the name Ramses, which is Ra, the Egyptian sun god, you know, right. the, the main god, our wonderful god of the resurrection, who every day will be resurrected. Ramses, take off the Ra, because Ramses is one born of Ra. But take off the Ra, and what are you left with? MSS, which is the same as Moses. So in Egyptian, the name Moses is one born of. And yet, He's born of the Hebrew mother, but it is the princess who takes him out of the water when his wonderful big sister watches the basket. We all know the story so well. His mother nurses him as long as she can and hides him and then sends him down the river in the basket. And the princess finds him while she's bathing and refers to him as Moses, one born of and I'm almost glad that the raw is cleaned up. You know, we don't want to have a prophet who's being named after <laughs> the sun god, a prophet right. of Jehovah. And the whole thing is just so miraculous. I just love this. These, these women here are so powerful. Not only does this wonderful Egyptian woman have empathy and a heart willing to adopt this child, but she's also willing to allow the Hebrew little girl, this little eight-year-old, Miriam, to say, can my mom nurse the baby? You know, can, can I please go find somebody to help you here? And so the mother is allowed into the court and helps raise this little child. And so if it's anything like what I understand in the ancient world, they nurse them a little bit longer than we do. And she could have had an influence on this child in a very, very early age for a first couple of years of his life, if not, if not a little bit beyond that. I don't know. We're not told, but <laughs> it is, he does know that um, I think it fits though. I mean, it, it does know that he yeah. he does know that he is Hebrew, not Egyptian. Right. So all of this is what Exodus two, right? Yes. And so we come through the end of two, right? And, and so, he's being raised as a prince in Egypt. That's right. And then he has that altercation where he has to leave. Right. And in the text now, it says that to defend one of his brethren, someone is killed. Right. So in I don't want to say in self-defense because he's the one not, he doesn't do it, but he, he kills someone to defend his brethren, which for some reason is on a different plane in the law of Moses. We know it's an eye for an eye. Um, right. The Lord reveals that to Moses right. later on, but it seems that that's sort of the case here as well. And so, that, you know, verse yes, 12, Stephen tells us 14, anyway, yeah, right. yeah. 12 and 14 in Exodus two. And then he flees in verse 15 to go out to the land of Midian. And I just love the land of Midian because this is Abraham's third wife, Keturah, after Sarah dies. He marries Keturah and has six sons. And Midian is one of those. So we've got another descendant of Abraham that the Lord takes one of his prophets to. And the other reason why I love this is because he's living with a Midianite high priest, Jethro, and Jethro holds the priesthood. Yeah. So it wasn't just given, even though the birthright was given from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, Keturah's sons were also righteous enough to hold the priesthood. Yeah. And that makes me so happy that Jethro also was a descendant of many, 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 many generations. You know, it's Abraham's 2000. This is now about 1500. So 500 years or so since Abraham, and we're dealing with a righteous man. Yeah, I love this. It, in 24, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, 
with Isaac and Jacob. There it is. It ties it all together. Yeah. The, the writing really is beautiful. If we can look at the poetry and the way it ties it all together, it's perfect. It's just beautiful. That ends chapter two right there. So that's a lot covered in two, right? Yeah. You know? <laughs> and I wish, we could, I wish we could spend about five more hours on each of these. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But I really love especially the types of Christ as we see Moses becoming. And we see more of that even in chapter three. So what happens in chapter three here, right? So I think he's, has he already been married? Does he get oh, Jethro's it's... daughter to marry already? Um, Zipporah? So there Yeah, is... he marries her in chapter two. Okay. okay. So in chapter three is where he starts seeing the burning bush. And we have that beautiful image of the spirit of God, like a fire is burning in right. its first song there in chapter three, verse two. And he's a good shepherd, once again, a type of our savior as a good shepherd and he's watching his father's flocks as another type of Christ. I just Every time you look at it, just try to find messages of Christ. And we also have a nice Joseph Smith translation sometimes added here in verse 2 that he was in the presence of the Lord in verse 2. This angel there is not just an angel. He is seeing the Lord, right. according to the Joseph Smith translation. And this call that he receives as a prophet, I see paralleling many other calls as a prophet, including the Savior initially, because our Savior also answers in the premortal existence, according to the book of Abraham, here am I. Right. And when Moses is called in verse four, he answers, here am I. And may we all every night on our knees, as we ask for guidance, <laughs> respond to the Lord, here am I. It's really beautiful. And then, of course, that sacred moment where this bush now becomes a sacred space. And the Lord says in verse 5, Put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. The temple imagery here of entering into the presence of the Lord and it all of a sudden becomes sacred space is empowering. And it adds so much more to my temple worship as I see it continue, as the Lord teaches Moses and makes covenants with Moses and gives him signs and tokens and promises for his future. It's a beautiful temple text. I think it's absolutely fundamental to understand. You have to know the Old Testament to understand the symbolism of our temple worship. I think so. I mean, this is, these are the roots that, you know, going forward to the tabernacle, I mean, these are, yes, these are right. the stories that the right. Lord chooses these symbols from, right? This, this is all Amen. Yeah. the prelude to that. And that's so important. So, and in fact, when the Lord calls him to deliver his people, that, that's verse 8, he starts giving him, in verse 12, he uses the word, I will give you a token unto you and that I have sent you, and this is how I'm going to do it. And, of course, he goes onto a high mountain, right. which is always a symbolism of? Of the temple. Of the temple. Right. Yeah. Always, always. Even in Christ's time, he goes up to the mountains to praise to the Lord. It's, it's just beautiful. You know, said again in the Book of Mormon several times, right? With Nephi oh, going to Nephi a high mountain. Oh, Nephi goes there. Yeah, excellent. Oh, visions. thank you. That's terrific. You're, you're right on it. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I'm a mountain climber myself. There's a, in Yosemite, beautiful place. There's these massive cliffs just on the other side of El Capitan. Yeah. And they're called cathedrals. Oh, yes. Right? I've, climbed rock, those. I've never rock. done the front face, but I've done the back face yeah, many times. And, and you do feel holiness I there. Can, you feel the Spirit you, of the Lord. You do. I, I mean, I've spent some, I mean, it's a 1,600-foot cliff, you know, spent all day climbing it. And I remember coming down on the sunset. And, and just feeling the yeah, presence of you, God. you feel that. You, oh, you John, that's beautiful. You uh, you I, I hope we can all be a little transcendentalist and see God in bushes 
In fact, maybe we should just pause for a minute and quote this beautiful portion, only a couple lines of this beautiful poem. Every bush, and I'll probably quote it wrong because it's just off my head, but <laughs> every bush is aflame with fire, but only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and eat blackberries or pluck blackberries or something. It's, yeah. it's beautiful. I love that. I think the sense of the sacred is what separates the covenant people from, I guess, the rest of the world, right? Yeah. It's a sense of the sacred. And the other thing that we're missing here in, in Exodus, chapter 3, is the powerful visions that he receives on either Horeb or Sinai or wherever that we now have as Moses chapter 1, where he sees the creation. He sees, I mean, Moses is gone from a place where he says, I, I can't do this. I can't do this. You know, he's telling the Lord here in chapter 3, oh, this is too hard. Please, I said, I, 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 right. I, 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 I stutter, stutter, <laughs> you know. And yet, after seeing these visions of the Lord repeatedly, he becomes such a man of power so that he does go before Pharaoh and he does speak for his people. And it's beautiful. We also are introduced to another name for the Lord here in, in verse 14. So far in the Bible, most of the names are Yahweh or Elohim. But here we have, I am that I am, this sense of being, this sense of eternity in that use of the verb, etre, mm. or I don't know. I mean, other languages where it is, the Hebrew, asher, but it has this conjugation that has to do with existence and this possible translation of I am who I am, or I am here, I am really present, or I am existence, or I am who is, I am being. You know, there's all sorts of ways of translating that there in verse 14, but it helps us better understand the nature of God, which then helps us understand our nature and our relationship to him better. It's a good thing to ponder on as you're trying to fall asleep at night or before your prayers or all day long. So we're trying to remember him. <laughs> so Moses gets the commandment here yep. to leave and to take, of course, you know, this is well told in the stories about the plagues, right? Yeah, and I feel well like these stories are so well known. Oh, he goes before Egypt. I just want to emphasize that Joseph Smith has changed a very important part. He's got this great relationship with his big brother. His big brother comes out to meet him. and Aaron. Aaron, thank you. And Aaron goes with him, and they both work on with the Pharaoh, and they do trial and error. The Lord says, this is what's going to happen. He's always right. He tells him exactly what's going to happen what happens and as he's trying to prove to not only later the Pharaoh, but also to Moses himself, he puts his hand in his bosom, comes out leprous. And that's in chapter four. And the rod turns into the snake. Um, of course, the snake has multiple images and meanings. Sometimes it's for bad. Sometimes it's for good. I think actually, I personally think it's a counterfeit that it mm. is a symbol. The serpent was a symbol of the savior. And then it became a counterfeit symbol of the devil. The devil is always trying to counterfeit. So he uses the same things. But, you know, he gives all these objections. But the thing that I wanted to emphasize with it, Joseph Smith changes the translation and says, these people are doing it on their own. Pharaoh is hardening his own heart. And the objections that come from Pharaoh in the King James Version say God hardens his heart because we still are plagued with this Calvinistic idea that God has so much control, he's either going to damn you or he's going to exalt you. Right. And there's no in between. There's no three degrees of glory. There's no right. uh, other ideas. You know, it's it's either one or the other. And I'm so grateful that Joseph Smith carefully alters that. And it's interesting as we look in also restored scripture and in other areas where Joseph writes, it's very clear that the Pharaoh, even in the Book of Mormon, it says 
the Lord softened Pharaoh's heart to finally let them go. Right. But not the other way around. Anyway, I just uh, wanted to bring that out. As we look at these plagues, the water to blood, the locusts, the frogs, the lice, they're all Egyptian gods that are being destroyed. Of course, the darkness would be destroying the sun god. And the water god is now destroyed with the blood. And they're not only symbols for Moses, but in the book of Revelation, seven of the ten plagues are said to will come again at the last days. Right. And I assume that they will not be exactly the same, but they're described pretty similar. And the other thing that I think is fascinating about these is the first couple appear that, you know, the water, all the water turns to blood and they start digging wells, but it only lasts seven days. But then the last seven do not affect the Israelites. It only affects the wicked. And I, I hope that that's how it will be in the last days, because we're told that a lot of these plagues will not come to the Zion people. And once we establish a Zion society, once we establish a place where the righteous are living, then some of the plagues will be detoured from them. And of course, we know that as soon as we are living righteously enough, then the Lord will come. So as soon as a Zion is prepared, as soon as the bridegroom or the Lord's people are prepared, then the Savior can come again. But it's interesting to me to see how the book of Revelation ties in these plagues as right. well, because they're all beautiful images of Christ. I guess the best image of Christ, though, is is the Passover, isn't it? Right. Why don't Why don't we jump Let's ahead to, to that yeah. one? 12? Yeah, 11 announces it, right? And then 12... Is what happens what happens in eleven that we need to talk about with the announcing? Uh, well, promises to lay the firstborn, slay the firstborn. Yeah, right? yeah, it's that interaction so between that, the Pharaoh. That, of course, is you know the beginning of the types. I just of want to add one thing more about fairly a, short chapter. Two, eleven so verse two as well. It's interesting that the Lord is commanding them to borrow jewels and steal them from their neighbors. I've heard people defend this by saying, well, they've been working for 100 years for the Egyptians without ever getting paid. This is their payment. You know, it's it's rightly overdue wages. They And they should have a little interest here. I've heard other people say, well, the Egyptians are completely ruined. They're destroyed. Their army's destroyed. Their people are destroyed during these 10 plagues. These are going to go for naught. These are going to just be destroyed because the whole nation is going to, to fall. Right. So you might as well take them. But I also look at it a little bit like our discussion with the Abrahamic sacrifice. If the Lord commands something, it's not a sin. And the Lord says, go borrow of your neighbors. He wants his people to leave with plenty. And they do. Anyway, that's, I, I don't know the real answer to that one, but those are three different ways of it being described. And then, of course, the last plague is announced in verse 5, that the firstborn in all the lands of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of the Pharaoh that sitteth upon the throne to the firstborn of the maidservant behind the mill. And also, not just humans, but all the firstborn of the beasts. Well, my thought is those poor cattle have already been destroyed by the boils and the hail and the, right. the, the flies have been driving them crazy. So I don't know how many cattle are still alive. But anyway, they're gonna, it is absolutely powerful to look at it symbolically also. Well, and, this, this sets up the symbolism in Leviticus too, right? You know, with the temple ceremonies and the firstborn of the flocks and oh, linking those they to— will be the ones who were sacrificed. Right. Yeah. You know, it's, you know, of course getting into the Passover a little bit more, but, you know, these are the sacrifices. He's explicitly linking these to the firstborn, you know. Yeah. Let's just start out royalty, with, the, right? with chapter 12 and start looking for signs of Christ there. I love the fact that they start a new year. They're going to change their calendar system. It's no longer going to be 
whatever it was in Egypt, yep. their people are now going to have a new calendar. And on the 10th day of the month, they're going to choose a lamb. And I guess one reason why this is so dear to me is I look at the calendar and the New Testament time, the Jewish calendar, the New Testament time, and we're told in John, John's the only gospel that really gives us dates and times. Everybody else just gives us, like, they only hold Jesus down in Jerusalem one time. And John has three separate Passovers in Jerusalem. So the others are geographically oriented. Everything that happens in Galilee is first, and everything that happens in Jerusalem is last. But John gives us this calendar of Christ's life, and John's gospel says that on that Sabbath before his resurrection, which we refer to as Palm Sunday, again, we're going back to the idea of Christ's triumphal entry, is the 10th day. And that's Mm. the day the lamb was chosen. That's right. And so we see this parallel between our Savior being the lamb that is chosen during this triumphal entry. We've got references in both Matthew and in John's gospel where the high priests or whoever it is, the bad guys are saying, let's go get him. You know, we, we have some right. discussion of saying, okay, this is awful. We want to we want to stop this. So that's just right there in, in verse 3. And then we're told— Verse 5, right? What's 5? What, what did you read Your that lamb one? shall be without blemish, male of the first year. Keep going. This is powerful. And so—and uh, then 7, and they shall take of the blood— Oh, no, no, no. I meant more about the first year. Oh, the first year? Yeah, I meant more about this sheep because it says it can be taken from the sheep or the goats, but without blemish and male is so perfect for our Savior. But the first year, I think, is interesting because that is the prime time to eat the best lamb. You know, an old mutton isn't very good. (laughs) And age 30 is the prime of life for our Savior to also begin his ministry. So I just wanted to add in that, that little bit to point out one more type of our Savior. That's all. I also love the fact that the Book of Mormon refers to, at least Nephi, Nephi really refers to Christ most often as the Lamb of God. Right. And I think it's a Passover symbol. I just feel like he's saturated. He's from this area. This is his vocabulary. Well, he uses, you know, Moses as his reasoning to try to get Laman and Lemuel on his side, right? Oh, right. So he's He's he's, well, yeah, he's well versed in this is his sort of faith story, right? You know, refers to these miracles. But as we look at our Savior as the one without blemish and the male and the prime of his life, who's kept from the 10th day to the 14th day when he's slaughtered, we see Christ in his life right in Jerusalem. He's there. He's preaching the temple every day, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then our Last Supper and the trial before he's slaughtered. But he is very clearly stated in John, is put on the cross at noon. And that as the lambs are being slaughtered on the altar for the Passover, John is the only one who says Christ is on the cross when the lambs are being slaughtered. The Last Supper was the day before the Passover. John is the one who puts this calendar clearly in place. It's not just in the New Testament. I I really love Alma's description of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God, too. He says in Alma 34, I'm sure you are familiar with this one, verse 14, this is the whole meaning of the law, meaning the law of Moses, you know. Every wit pointing to that great and last sacrifice, and that great and last sacrifice will be the Son of God, the infinite and eternal. So all of this beautiful imagery from chapter 12 of Exodus with the Passover is to point us to Christ. 
But what about verse, verse? so 6 says he's going to be killed in the evening, and the evening in that day and age was the few hours before the sunset. So they're being killed from noon on. And remember, they go around and they check to see if Christ is dead, and they're ready to break his bones mm-hmm. at the hour of prayer, which is 3 p.m., and he is already gone. But what do you think about the imagery of verse 7? I shall take of the blood. And, and strike, strike it, it on the side posts. Side posts. And on the upper door post, you know, on the lintels and across the top. Right. I see two things. The blood, I think, is a very simple one. You know, the blood To see shed. our Savior. Yeah, to see the Savior. Death. But on the posts, right? This is, yes, this I is, love it. It's the doorway. This is the door. This is the entry to your home. This is, you know, symbolized for me when you, when you, it's not a home if you're seeing the side of the house, it's like, it's not your house, right? When you say, this is my house, you're looking at the front with the door. Yeah, it's your entrance. Your ingoings and your outgoings are going to be in the name of the Lord, and then he will be your protection. Right, and it's a witness. Like, you know, we we take his name upon us. Oh, like we this house are, will be covered by Christ. Yeah, yeah. We, we, this is who we are and what we believe. You know, yeah. this is it's also it's a testament rem- that reminds this is what we believe. The, do you right. remember... I don't know if you've ever studied uh, Hugh Nibley's book called Approaching Zion, but in that book, he describes the old ancient roots for the word atonement. Yes. And yeah, where he says, you know, you're fleeing from your enemies and you go out into the wilderness and you you prostrate yourself before a tent and you call out to the sheik or the chieftain and you ask for protection and safety. And if he called you from the, the door, his doorway, and you stand and he takes his cloak and he covers you with his cloak and embraces right there at this doorway. And then he can let you into his home where he provides food and protection. But I like to think of that tent as the same word as a tabernacle or a temple. And the temple or a tabernacle has the blood of the lamb at the doorway as the atonement will cover us to enter into the presence of the Lord, where he will nurture us and protect us. This imagery of the Passover on the doorways is one of my most favorite imageries of the Passover. Yeah, and you link this to what's happening with him, which is also adding the symbol of freedom, right? Or or what you mentioned earlier, this transition from building treasures for the world. To treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven. This is where that happens. This this is the final miracle that changes everything. It's the, it is the gateway, and it's appropriate that I think it's the door. And I miss verse 6. I tell you, you can't, you can't miss one, one verse. So it's the 14th <laughs> day of this first month of the year. It says, The whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. Do you remember that it's the whole assembly rose to take Christ before Pilate? This is in Mark and in Luke. You know, they talk about the whole assembly rising. It's not just the Sanhedrin that's making this decision. It's not just the chief priests. It's not just the people who are working with Pilate on the Roman side who are willing to actually do the crucifixion itself. It's the whole assembly that's involved in this. You know, they're trying to gather as many people involved in it. Now, I do not believe the whole assembly will be guilty of the death of the Savior, but it is interesting that both the Exodus 12 account and the New Testament accounts in Luke 23, 1 refer to that. Yeah, well, it is symbolic of that all fall short, right? All of oh, us sin. Oh, I am so glad you said that. We're all, yes. we're all accountable. Yes, we all fall short. And then look at verse 8. They have to eat the flesh roasted, with fire all that night. That's why they say right. there has to be at least, later on it says there has to be at least 10 people eating it. Right. I guess that's in the next chapter. With bitter herbs, right? 
Yes, you have the bitter herbs to represent the bitterness of life, or I believe maybe even the bitter cup there. I think so. But what's the roasting with fire? I'm not sure. I mean, whenever I see fire, I think of the Holy Ghost. Of course. You know, Spirit of God, like in fire is burning. Also, the fire is going to purify it. Right. Which is the But role, he's really big on this. Do Spirit. not put it in water, you know. Yeah. So the idea of this purification, I love the footnote here in verses 9 and of Isaiah's references as well. It's not to be boiled or anything. It's going to be, the Spirit is going to be there. It's going to be purifying. If this is going to symbolize our Savior, it just takes on all new meaning. I also love the fact that nothing can be left. Look at verse 10. Nothing, Nothing of it can be remain in the morning. Yeah, I yeah. think of the tomb, right? Yeah, it's all taken. I also think of the He's not here. Ac- yeah. Christ asking us to accept all of the gospel. Yeah. I guess that's Alma, isn't it? It's back to Alma 34. Um, let, me, let me read you this. Verse 13. Then shall the law of Moses be fulfilled. Yea, it shall be all fulfilled. Every jot and tittle and none shall have passed away. Hmm. You know, none of this lamb. If we want to accept Jesus Christ, we have to accept all of him, all of it. That's that's verse 10. I, I think that's really beautiful. But going back to verse 8, what, the unleavened bread is another fascinating image of something that's not going to spoil. It's not going to have the same tendency to, well, it's already stale. It's already <laughs> a cracker. You know? well, I, I, yeah, I think I think so. Leavening is is not wrong in and of itself, you know, makes it easier, easier to digest. But this idea of giving up something pleasant— yeah, it, it for tastes good. Longevity, yeah. right? Is, oh, that's good. I think is a yeah. is a powerful symbol. And then they also they often use the symbol later of being puffed up. Yes. The pride, you know. <laughs> that's that's a good one. Yeah. I thought for that. a whole week at the time of Christ, anyway, for a whole week they have to have the leaven out of their house, and that's what they say here. I mean, it's all coming from the law of Moses, but they work hard for the week before to get it all out. And the bitter herbs, of course, are the bitterness of Christ's sacrifice for our behalf. It's it's just yeah. powerful. Even going on to verse eleven when he talks about. You have to be ready to go. You know, yeah. put your put your staff in your hand. Get your get your shoes on right now. You know, get get ready to go while you're eating this. No, remember they ate lounging. You know, they're not. There's no there's no Da Vinci table <laughs> right. on any of these things. You know, these people are eating in different ways. He says, no, no, no. I want you to. This is the first fast foods meal, I guess. I, huh? I, I think of this especially in the context. They've been enslaved for how many hundreds of years? Yeah, and well, like, at least get, one or two or three. Today's yeah. the day. Get your shoes on. We're leaving. Yeah. This is the last meal, and right? so many times when I think of prophets, I see them acting in obedience immediately. Yes. As we read the rest of the Old Testament, Samuel, and even in the book of Mark, it's always immediately with there's faith, obedience right? with yeah. faith. Eating this lamb with your shoes on, ready to leave. So it's how faith. we fit in here in, into the law of, as well, as we then can be those who are ready to act. We have our shoes on. When God calls, we will have our staff in hand. We will go forward. It's a beautiful image. And then he asks us to keep this feast through all generations. And by the time of Paul, he refers to it. It's one of my favorite verses in 1 Corinthians. It's chapter 5, verse 7. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And we end with that beautiful promise that our Savior will be our Paschal Lamb. Yeah. So many good things. For me, I mean, this is an explicit version where the Lord is going line by line intentionally preparing the people for a type of Christ, right? The Messiah is coming. You know, and there's it's going to be a long time away. Yeah, there's a lot of symbols they don't understand. It's like, this is preparing you for Christ. And this is reiterated again and again in the Book of Mormon. And, and even us who can look at it after the fact, 
can look at these things and say, do you recognize Christ? Can you see God's hand from the beginning to the end? Yeah. It's powerful, isn't it? Yeah. I love it. Wonderful. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thank you.